CIUT 89.5 Toronto. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Hi, I'm Daniel Garber from CIUT Friday Morning. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Hi, I'm Mark Tara from Rainbow Country and together we are Team CIUT bringing you coverage of TIFF 2020. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um, I'm very proud to be here tonight and I'm so grateful that you joined us. I'll stop till you get enough. Hello Toronto! Happy Halloween. Toronto, the best of them all. If you ever think about the best place to watch things, it's different. I want to thank Toronto because you have always honored, celebrated, exalted female directors. The warmth and the love that you gave me is something I will never forget in my life. It's so exciting to be here at Toronto in this gorgeous theater. This is just like Christmas Day. Thanks to you for coming. This is truly a very special evening for me. This is why we do what we do, you know. I love this festival and it's an honor to be back. Behind me is what we call society, what we see in our everyday and what we have on screen. Let's keep on doing movies about us. We're making pictures about what's happening today in society. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Good morning, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to this special TIFF 2020 broadcast. This is Donna G, and joining me for the special coverage are Daniel Garber. You can hear his segment, Daniel Garber at the Movies, every Friday on the show, simply called CIUT Friday Morning. You can also find him at culturalmining.com. And he has the number one LGBT podcast. It's Mark Tara, producer and host of the syndicated radio show, Rainbow Country. And I'm Donna G, host of The More the Merrier, Wednesday mornings, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m., film, theater, and arts at large coverage. Today, Daniel Garber and I will both have TIFF flashback interviews. Daniel will be flashing back to The Lighthouse, my flashback will be with director Miriam Joubert of the short film Brotherhood, which was nominated for an Academy Award in 2018. And Mark will have an interview from TIFF 2020 about No Ordinary Man, about the life of jazz musician Billy Tipton. My name is Charles Officer, and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince on CIUT 89.5 FM. Film critic Daniel Garber. You can find him on CIUT Friday Morning with his segment, Daniel Garber at the Movies. Hi, Daniel. Thanks, Donna. 
Robert Eggers is a celebrated young director known for his stunningly beautiful and very weird arthouse films. I talked with him at TIFF last year. The Lighthouse is only a second feature, but it won many awards and was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography. It stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson and was shot in Nova Scotia in stunning black and white. Here's my interview with Robert Eggers. Hi, this is Daniel Garber, the movies for culturalmining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM. In the 19th century, on an Atlantic island rock, an old salt and a young jack tar share threadbare lodgings. Their job, keep the lighthouse burning to warn all passing boats. The old man's there for the long haul, but the younger lad seems to be a temporary replacement. But as the isolation grows, they become increasingly unhinged as they try to keep their senses at the lighthouse. The Lighthouse is a new film about life on an isolated rock, as seen through the fantastical imaginations of the two men living there. It's written and directed by award-winning filmmaker Robert Eggers, his second feature after the which. The Lighthouse premiered at TIFF and is opening soon in Toronto, and I caught up with Robert Eggers at TIFF to tell us more about The Lighthouse. Hi, Robert. Thanks so much for meeting with me. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So, I've only seen two of your films, but they clearly sh share certain traits based on historical writing, black and white, with a hint of the supernatural, or, or more than that in other ones. And uh, tell me, is this a steady pattern, or is just how it's been so far? Uh, I developed um, several things uh, after The Witch that did not get... Uh, ultimately greenlit right <laughs> uh, and this one which uh shares much of the same fabric as the witch and is yet another new england folktale uh um did get did did was finally the thing on my slate that happened uh, all, all of those films were set in in the past and all of them had a certain darkness but although uh, they were they had they were much less in common than than these two mm -hmm. i also just want to say quickly that my i also i wrote this with my brother max oh okay like it wasn't uh, oh, okay sing, sing, i was not the only author of this sorry movie. about that like, no, no, yeah. no 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 uh but you're, you're the one who's here so i'll talk of about course. it yeah, yeah. um how do how do these Movies from, did you come across these manuscripts and say this would be a great movie? Or did you come up with the German of an idea for a movie and said, I want to find some writing on this to use? Yes. Well, uh, talking about my brother, uh, he, okay. he had the idea of a ghost story in a lighthouse. Mm -hmm. That was a contemporary film that was very different from this. But I thought, ah, oh, ghost story in a lighthouse. That's such a good idea. I wish I'd come up with that. A couple months later, I said, how's that, ghost, that lighthouse movie coming? He says, that kind of sucks. Uh, and I asked him if I could take a crack at it. And because I am, when he said ghost story in a lighthouse, I immediately thought of, uh, two lighthouse keepers and a cramped lighthouse keepers cottage with uh, a broken kerosene lamp and this dusty, crusty, rusty, musty bl black and white movie. Um, so when I had that image and, and the idea of what the atmosphere would be, I started reading different stories about lighthouse keepers until I found something that was a true story uh, that was, again, not this story, but was something to riff off of. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, and then my brother and I, um, you know, uh, wrote this thing together and we used uh, research from uh, Herman well, Melville. Well, for, yeah, from 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 Melville and, and Stevenson and. 
uh, and uh, many other authors from the period. And there's, I mean, there's readily available huge yeah. books about maritime yeah. uh, uh, slang and, and, and dialect. But there was a Maine-based author, Sarah Orne Jewett, oh. who wrote in, in, in dialect, like phonetically. She would – they're very sweet Maine tales, but she would interview farmers and uh, retired sea captains and fishermen. Uh, and, and her work was was one of the uh, the, the – uh, most fruitful um, places for us to to, uh, for, to, 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 to dig from when, when creating the, the two different dialects of the different characters. So it's uh, Willem Dafoe is a voice sort of like a pirate. And uh, Pattinson sounds more like a Boston South Side working class, maybe a Bowery boy, but without the... Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. Wh- wh- where do the accents come from? How did that well, develop? Well, um, the... Uh, yeah, Rob, Rob's... Um, uh, you know, version of of, of a down east accent comes from uh, inland people and, and farmers, uh, right? Uh, and and uh, and and Defoe's piratey accent uh, does come from, believe it or not, like the these uh, the, these old time Mainers. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I I have a theory that there actually was a Rhotic, as in a hard R yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, dialect R, in, yeah. in, in, um, in people in the Maritime communities. Yeah. Uh, uh, not the Maritimes as in, in like Canada, Canada yeah. but in, in, in the uh, the, the, the Maritime world of, of New England. I could be wrong about that, but when you read uh, what Sarah Orne Jewett writes, it's hard to hear it with anything but that sort of semi-Bristilian uh, piratey accent. Right. Okay. And thankfully, Defoe can do something that to, to us sounds like a cartoony pirate and make it like believable. <laughs> totally, totally. The Watching the movie, it seems very tightly scripted and storyboarded, but at the same time, the inter- when the two men, when the two bodies interact, it felt almost improvisational. Was there any improvising? No, there was, movements there, or... there was there was no. I mean, there was there there are certain things that in the moment just kind of happen. Right. But 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 it sort of uh, controlled controlled chaos. Right. Uh, 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 the Robert Pattinson's uh, lumberjack d- dance. Right. Uh, <laughs> we rehearsed it many times, but the level at which he brought that on set was something uh, unexpected and new. But he knew where the camera was going to be, and, okay. and, and, uh, you know, and, and knew that he would have if he was going to improvise something, it would be based on like the camera placement. Well, I, I know it's, just, it's so cramped and uh, claustrophobic that you can't just go wild. You can't go over the place. It yeah, has yeah. to be. It has to be. Uh, yeah. Planned in advance. Yeah. Um, let's talk about sex. Um, Great. Uh, Robert Pattinson character has this masturbatory tool of a, I guess, a whalebone, yep. a mermaid. Mm-hmm. So talk about mermaids and sex in the movie. Uh, w- yeah. Wow, no one's been so blunt before. I mean, um, uh, I, I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I don't. I don't want to. I just. I'm only cautious because I don't want to. I, I, I'm. I'm. I. I like the film to ask questions sure, rather sure. than, you know, to give answers. Right, right. right. So, but, but I, I think clearly the, the mermaid, uh, has a, has a strong, uh, draw for, for Rob's character and, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, 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 and while she is literally an object, like right. literally like a figurine that he holds, right. like she, 
finally uh, has more more power <laughs> o- o- over him. Right. Uh, uh, you know, though p- potentially like women's sexuality as power is a regressive trope. Right. But it is certainly uh, true to uh, Robert Pattinson's 19th century lumberjack turned lighthouse keeper's ex- experience. Right. And uh, Last question. F- finally, um, your movies are quintessential American, and yet both of them shot, I understand, in Canada. Uh, this one in uh, Lighthouse in Nova Scotia. And I understand someone told me you went up to the forests uh, of Canada for the first one, for The Witch. Uh, well, there's no uh, good New England tax credits for filmmakers. Oh, okay. Well, that's, good. <laughs> that's good enough reason just for that. Yeah. But I, honestly, I had an incredible time in Nova Scotia. Uh, really, really, really loved the people there. Um, they, I mean, they're like New Englanders, only they're actually friendly. Right. Um, and uh, and and the crew was fantastic. I, I was, it was a great pleasure, and I enjoyed living in Halifax for the time that I was there. It was, it was great. Great. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks. Uh, this is Robert Ayers talking about his new film, The Lighthouse. This is Daniel Garber, the movies each Friday morning on CIUT eighty nine point five FM, and on my website, culturalmining.com. This is City Councilor Kristen Wong Tam, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. You can find him at marktara.com. He is Mark Tara, producer and host of the syndicated radio show Rainbow Country. It is also the number one LGBT podcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks, Donna. Coming up next, my interview with the filmmakers of the new trans documentary, No Ordinary Man. Ashling Chin Yi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I am well. Chase Joint, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for asking. Excellent. The the two of you are the co-creators, the co-directors of a new documentary, No Ordinary Man. But I always say this to my guests. First and foremost, welcome to the show to have your voices, your stories be heard by the LGBT community and beyond. So thank you so much for that, first and foremost. So the two of you are co-directors of the new documentary, No Ordinary Man, that's playing at TIFF 2020. Congrats on getting the film done. Thank you. Thank you. How are you feeling about the film? Excited. It's, um, you know, it's been... We've been we've been working on this movie for you know a year and a half more with Amos Mack as well and it's who is a co-writer on the film and it's just really exciting to launch our baby into the world. 
Ashling, let's let's stay with you here. When did you first hear about uh, Billy Tipton? That's the the subject of this new documentary. I first heard about Billy Tipton um, from our producer, Sarah Spring of Parabola Films. She was uh, interested in developing a project about him um, and and was showing me like different material with Billy Jr. and different uh, and how Billy's Billy Jr. and his mother, Kitty Tipton, were being absolutely vilified and Billy Tipton was being vilified on on talk shows in the late 1980s and in the early 90s. And it was clear that his story was being, you know, bastardized by by the mainstream media. So it opened up a curiosity um, to 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 learn more about him. Like I've always been attracted to telling stories about people who aren't always having their stories told properly about them or just not having their stories told at all. Um, so that was kind of the, the, my first uh, introduction to him and then quickly started talking to Amos Mack um, who had heard of Billy, you know, you know, before and had, had known of him as a historical figure, a historical trans figure. And that's where the kind of idea and kind of, you know, started to really grow and kind of crystallize. And Chase Joint, for yourself, when did you first hear about Billy Tipton? You know, my answer to that question is in a lot of ways in chorus with so many of the participants in our documentary, which is to say, you know, as a trans man myself, Billy Tipton has always existed in the ether. You know, Billy Tipton has always been um, a fabulous haunting of a trans masculine person in history that, um, you know, many have made, uh, a part of their own personal becoming, proof that people like us existed in, in, in decades prior. And then it was really through the invitation to join this project and the ongoing research that I began to understand Tipton's life and history in new ways. So, Ashling, the documentary No Ordinary Man, what is this documentary about? This documentary, it's about a lot of things, um, and we hope it's about a lot of things, but it's looking at the life of Billy Tipton, who was a uh, transmasculine jazz musician who, from Oklahoma City who came up in the 40s and 50s playing, playing jazz music in small clubs, lounges, and touring around like that, you know, doing, going on to radio stations and stuff like this, and, and he... He lived a very successful life. He was married five times. And then after he died, it was outed, it was leaked and outed to the media that he was a transgender man. And after that, his story was changed to be um, told that he was, uh, you know, he was basically an ambitious woman who wanted to play jazz so much that he, that uh, that they put on a pair of pants and a suit to, 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 follow that dream and it was and basically our film is trying to understand his story through a array of different trans people's lenses um, to to really explore who who he was and also where his story and its impact kind of sits today uh, in a contemporary in a contemporary place. Chase is always better at answering that question than I am though. <laughs> Oh, I think you hit so many of uh, so many of our speaking points. Yeah, I think you know <laughs> the the legacy of Billy Tipton has been controlled by the mainstream media, and in particular the talk show circuit. And so, 
together with our creative team, we thought what would happen to the story of Billy Tipton if we told it from a trans perspective and, and centered the voices of those who were most impacted by the telling of this particular life story. So Chase, the documentary tells Billy Tipton's story th- through current day trans artists. Why did you guys decide to use this approach for the documentary? You know, one of the things that I think we continue to say about history is that it is not a stable story, that in fact, the history we understand is just a repetition of stories by people who hold positions of power. And so what would we learn about Billy Tipton by inviting multiple people to the table to reflect on his significance? And because, you know, our understanding of transness and gender nonconformity is also not stable, what it meant to be a trans person in in the 1980s, for example, is very different from what it might mean to be a trans person in 2020. How could we create a much more kaleidoscopic portrait using Billy Tipton as our anchor? And so in some ways that returns to Ash's first reaction of, you know, what's the movie about? The movie's about a lot of things. Precisely that, that yes, we made a film about Billy Tipton, but we also made a film about what's at stake when you attempt to tell a story about a marginalized person in history. And Ashling, the documentary features Billy Tipton's story, Billy Tipton Jr. Talk to me about the process of getting Billy Tipton Jr. to be part of this documentary. Was it uh, easy, difficult? How was that journey? I mean, we were really lucky with Billy Jr. He has been, you know, since his father's passing, like he has been he's been the most vocal in defending his his father's legacy and defending his father's you know his father of being a, a a good a good father a good husband somebody who we loved somebody who should be revered in so many ways so when when we approached him about telling this story this the story in a documentary and not just in kind of the news clips that were that he was getting uh, victimized by in the in the late '80s and early '90s. Um, he was incredibly trusting and generous, and we spent well, I think four days in Spokane with him, getting to know him, looking at looking through all of his uh, memorabilia of his father, and and he was from from the start just always like you know, embraced us with open arms and and was incredibly generous with his father's music and, and all of these things. So it really, it really was a a wonderful journey with him actually. And the audio tapes that are part of the documentary, did those come through Billy Tipton Jr.? Some of them did. There's some of his recordings. um, When we hear Billy's voice singing or talking though, those were recordings that were done uh, for for live radio at one of his live performances or a couple of his live performances. So we got those from Billy Jr. But um, there was a biography that was written about Billy Tipton um, by this woman named Diane Middlebrook, who had done, uh, who told his story in a very problematic way, but like she did an incredible amount of research on his life. And so, and did tons of interviews, um, did, you know, really, really went around all over uh, the U.S. where, where Billy had, and you know, been playing and and touring around and living, and she had donated all of these interview recordings to Stanford University, which is where she taught. So we were able to Amos Mack and I went to Stanford 
about a year and a half ago, and we got to like dig through all of this research that was done by 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 Middlebrook um, and access to these to hours of these interviews. So I'm calling this the 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 talk show tour, so to speak. Uh, Billy Tipton's family, uh, his wife and son Billy Tipton Jr. They were on essentially the the talk show circuit on Oprah, on Sally Jesse Raphael, and others. Chase, I'm interested to know they were doing these shows after Billy Tipton's passing. And a man that was so private in his life, did it surprise you that after his death, his family became so public with his with his story and everything that came out? Did that surprise you that such a private man in his passing, his family would become so public? Well, I think one of the important things to recognize about his family in those contexts is that they are trying to do right by him in many ways. And that's one of the things that I find most compelling about Billy Jr., both historically in that talk show footage and in the contemporary moment as he continues to reflect on his father's life is that his narrative is unchanging, that he had a father who he loved and that he spent important time with throughout his childhood. And we can watch the way Kitty, one of Billy's partners, says he was a man, he was a father, he was a loving person who deserved respect. You know, I think what we experience in that talk show montage, though, is the violence of the medium itself. So we understand that in this moment in the 80s and 90s, the presence of trans people on talk shows was a circus spectacle. And, you know, the questions of trans, uh, asked of trans and gender nonconforming people on these shows focused on essentially three things, genitals, pain, and deception. And so the family is being put through the same machine as some of the trans subjects. But I do think that they exist there in defense of their father and in, de in defense of their partner. And uh, even while, you know, they could be seen or interpreted by some as contributing to to the spotlight. But they had to go public to to try to clear his name. I think that's right. And I think that that is, if we look back, I think that that is what motivated some of their ongoing appearances. So there's a, there's a term that's uh, no longer in use, but I have to say personally, I love it. And the term is this, female husbands. And there's a great book out called Female Husbands by author Jen Mannion, and she's been a guest on the show. And essentially, the book recounts stories of women who lived their lives as men, even being married to other women, dating back to the 1700s. Fast forward to Billy Tipton and his story in the 40s and the 50s. Ashling, I'm interested to know... Did you guys get any insight while doing this documentary as to why Billy Tipton did what he did? How he got that strength to do what he did? Because we're talking about the 40s, the 50s. There weren't role models back then of people really, truly living their truths. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing that we don't have any diaries from Billy. We don't have anything that says, oh, this is exactly what he was thinking to answer the questions that we're asking in the film. So that's why we we wanted to not make something that said just told one story or one way that we imagine he 
you know, um, why he lived his life in the way that he lived his life, apart from the fact that he lived it, you know, very honestly and authentically as a man and the people, all everyone who loved and knew him um, knew he was a man. And that was, that's the record we have to go off of, you know? So it's, um, so in, in that, it's like, that's why we wanted to tell it from this, like Chase says, like this kaleidoscope of, of experiences, because there isn't, you know, we can't point at like, well, this is his final testimonial about right. all the things he's ever, he's ever thought or mm -hmm. the truths he's ever wanted to live. But, but we hope that, we hope that in this, in this film that we're able to restore, you know, his, the, the, the respect that, that the people that loved him had for him and that people who knew him knew him as this very like loving and giving person um, who was also very talented as a musician and also was so many other things because our lives are quite, are, are more complex than just one motivation to do any one thing. And I think it really speaks to the human spirit and the strength of the human spirit, right? Back in the 40s and the 50s, the, the strength that he would have to have to do what he did. And I think one of the things that's interesting, even if you bring up the, the book Female Husbands, is that the subtitle of that book is uh, a trans history, right? And what I love about that is this sort of expansiveness of what's possible under the umbrella term of trans. And, and as we were journeying with our various interview subjects, the question was never, was Billy Tipton a trans person? Can we lock this into place? And can we get to the truth of his potential identificatory past, right? It was more what's at stake in asking these questions or what does it mean to look back from our contemporary moment and think, you know, is there someone here that, that I can find meaning with, right? Enduring meaning. And, and I think that there's a kind of slipperiness there that's, that's very productive. I love the moment in the film where Thomas Page McBee says, you know, it's important that we can look back, but we might be wrong. Or, you know, when Amos Mack says, I don't think Billy was thinking in the way we're thinking now. And all of these moments being okay to have trans men reflecting on, on their history, even if it is, is speculative. How would I summarize the story of Billy Tipton? He was a transmasculine jazz musician. Pretty simple. The first phrase that always comes to my mind is the gentleman's gentleman. You know, just the, the consummate professional and the gentleman's gentleman. The first time that I learned about Billy Tipton was probably 2003 or 2004. Um, just before I started my medical transition, I was doing a ton of research at that, at that point. And so I wanted to learn about uh, my ancestors essentially that came before me. In a way, Billy has been with me um, in sort of the background before my transition and thinking about him again from the place of being a trans man was very interesting for me because I think I had held him, um, you know, in, in just a sort of general context of queerness prior to that. And Chase, what's the overall, uh, where's this film heading once it's done the, the festival circuit, that sort of thing? Well, we have an exciting festival tour that continues to gain momentum, um, many of which we are not allowed to announce quite yet, but we're feeling very, very excited about its, um, its 
ongoing showcases. And, you know, our goal is to get the project in the living rooms and on the screens and in front of the eyes of as many people as possible. And so um, we, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the, the concluding sentence to that is, but uh, we're not gonna stop. You know, to, to the point about uh, 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 funding, we live in a, a culture and a climate where, you know, people say, Films about trans content are hard to sell, and we as a team just believe that that's a wholly unacceptable mm. uh, statement, and uh, we will not be kept down. I love that. <laughs> we will not be kept down. Powerful words. Ashling Chin Yi, I hope I didn't mess up your name throughout this interview. Not at all. You said it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Chase Joint, I hope I said your name correctly. You did indeed. <laughs> Thank you both for being on the show and thank you for I've seen the documentary. Well done, powerful, moving, well done to both of you and to everyone involved. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
Don't forget for virtual tickets for No Ordinary Man. Tiff.net. Hi, I'm Mayor John Tory, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm old enough to remember when they called it U of T Radio. This is Donna G with a TIFF flashback. When I interviewed Miriam Joubert uh, in 2018, neither of us realized that she would then go on to win the Toronto International Film Festival Shortcuts Award for Best Canadian Short Film for Brotherhood. When she won, I was watching the uh, awards in my living room and I jumped when her name was called. And later, when Brotherhood was nominated for an Academy Award in 2019, I was ecstatic and um, I reached out to her and I congratulated her. And of course, she was very excited that is definitely one of those uh, TIFF moments um, that will stay with me. A, because her film is absolutely beautiful. And B, because Miriam is not only a wonderful filmmaker, she is a wonderful person, so nice and genuine. And I was happy to see her success. When filmmakers make a film, especially a short, they never know what will happen. Um, It's a project usually done from the heart. And so I want to share with you an excerpt from that original interview that I did with Mariam Joubert. And it's thanks to the Toronto International Film Festival that we linked. So with the festival coming up, why not dip into the past? And maybe this will encourage you to go out and see some, not go out, but virtually um, invest in seeing some of the short films that are screening at this year's festival in the five shortcuts programs. You never know what might happen. Here now is my interview with Miriam Joubert about Brotherhood. One of the things that you do well is is framing, and I really noticed it in uh, Brotherhood. Were you conscious of that? Is that how you work, by frames? Like framing people, framing images? Is that part of your, yeah, your I mean, repertoire? I mean, I think, I mean, Vincent, the cinematographer, and I have been working together since film school, so it's been almost six years now, and we've kind of figured out a really great way of collaborating but I'm I'm very involved in the framing because, um, like I mentioned, visuals. I'm I'm very drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Brotherhood, uh, from the very beginning, my instinct was to really focus. You know, the cast. I worked hard on the casting of the film, and I knew that the faces of my characters were really interesting. So I really wanted to highlight all the details in their faces. So their freckles, mm-hmm. uh, the Be- weather. I want to get into there. yeah. I want to get into that later. Why don't we set the okay, stage no for um, for Brotherhood by telling the audience um, what Brotherhood is about? So Brotherhood takes place in the north of Tunisia in a very rural area, and it explores uh, a family story dealing with a very complex reunion. Um, the eldest son of the family, Malik, returns home from Syria with a mysterious Syrian wife. And basically the film explores how the different characters in the film react to it, the family members, 
each of them has a different reaction to Malik's return. And in, this, in the essence, it's, it's a story about a father and son and how, you know, the past wounds and misunderstandings leads to tragic results. The, uh, is it the Tunisian title? Ikwen? How do I pronounce yes. that? Ikhwan. Ikhwan. Does that actually translate to brotherhood or what is that meaning? Um, it translates to brotherhood, but it has um, the connotation, the more religious connotation okay. of brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Because the word brotherhood in Islam, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people have heard like the Islamic brotherhood or, you know, I wanted to create, I wanted to use the word brotherhood that had that religious connotation mm-hmm. so that it could better, you know, translate to the narrative of the film. Yes, I'm, I was very interested in, um, I keep saying interested, but I loved your film. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, uh, because it took me to areas I'd, I'd never been before. And in, mm-hmm. in Brotherhood, you're talking about... Uh, political issues that I hear peripherally about on the news, but I'm not really tuned in to the Tunisian-Syrian tension. Can you speak more, a little yeah. bit more about that? Because that is, you know, the the impact on the family. Yeah, I mean, one of the more baffling facts that I learned was that um, Tunisian foreign fighters make up the largest percentage of foreign fighters to ISIS which this includes men and women because a lot of young women have also gone to to Syria mm-hmm. to marry fighters or you know be sexual um, women to the fighters and that that was always a strange fact to me because you know Tunisians we pride on we pride ourselves on being well educated more out of the Arab world, more liberal, more open-minded, and yet we have this this issue where we have a lot of Tunisian men going to join ISIS. So that was a point of inspiration for the film, is to explore, you know, how it how this impacts Tunisian families, specifically one Tunisian family. And this is a, a family that looks like no other I see very often on film. Uh, the brother, you're talking about brotherhood and also brothers because there are three brothers in the film. And I yeah. love their freckles. It was so unexpected. <laughs> where did yeah, you find I mean, Where did you find them? Yeah. I mean, this is the, the crazy story of the film, actually. Every time I tell this story, everyone gets excited. But um, basically, two years ago, I was driving in the north of Tunisia. And um, on the side of the road, I met the two eldest brothers. And I stopped to take their photo because, I mean, once you see the film, you realize that these boys have really amazing faces. They have red hair and freckles, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very unique to Tunisia. Um, You know, you don't see that a lot in Tunisia, what I mean. And they actually told me no, that I couldn't take their photo, so I drove away. but I couldn't get them out of my mind because there was something. It just hit me. My instinct told me there was something special. So I wrote the script to the film, and I told Vincent, my cinematographer, that I wanted to go look for them. So him and I went back last summer, and we basically had a day to find them. Uh, We didn't know where they were exactly. We didn't know their names, but 
we managed by the end of the day to find them and to convince them to act into act in the film. Um, and the other nice surprise was we realized that that they had a younger brother, Ryan, who was also a redhead with freckles. Um, so I added him in the script as well. <laughs> little Rayanne. Yeah. yeah, little Rayanne. Um, so uh, what did their family think about, you know, you, this filmmaker, coming in and wanting to make a, a short film starring their children? Yeah, I mean, that was also a big dilemma. I actually, you know, had to... Initially, I told the boys, like, I'll be back in six months take their time to think about whether you want to do this or not. But when I returned in the winter for the shoot, I had to spend like two weeks trying to convince their father to let me take have permission because he, you know, I'm when I talk about like, it's a very rural area. There's no running water. Um, they have televisions, but you know, film industry seems extremely far away. So he was nervous. He was like, are you going to steal my kids? Are you taking them to America? Like, what are you doing? And um, I joked with him. I told him, no, actually, I'm going to come live with you and you're going to have to adopt me in, in some sense, you know? <laughs> um, so we ended up going to the police station. We showed, you know, the officers our papers and they said we were legitimate. So he finally gave his blessing. But it, it took a while to convince them, that's for sure. They do a wonderful job, considering they're non-actors. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what was incredible, was actually, you know, I had to wait until I got their father's permission to actually do any tests with them, any screen tests with them. So I didn't know if they were going to be comfortable in front of the camera, um, but my instinct told me that I don't know. I never questioned it, and it was pretty amazing because we didn't. Ha Once the father said yes, we didn't have that much time before the film uh, to do the shoot. They immediately were comfortable in front of the camera, which was really impressive. And they each had like a, their own style of acting, which mm -hmm. is also really crazy. I thought these kids yeah. are so natural. I didn't know that they really were natural. <laughs> um, yeah, they're they're not, but they are acting because I mean, this is yes, they live in the north, they live in these conditions, but they've never experienced a brother coming home from Syria. Mm -hmm. So in some regards, they really had to, you know, they had to act. It wasn't a docu-fiction. It was yeah. uh, very much like a narrative setup. Yeah, especially because the brother comes home with uh, a woman who is wearing a niqab and yes. um, the whole tension that is created in the family because of that. Yeah. So tell me about the adult actors who um, who play the mother and father in the film. Yes, yeah, so um, Salha Nasrawi plays the character of the mother, and Muhammad Grayat plays the character of the father. And they're both professional Tunisian actors. Uh, Salha has a lot of experience in theater, and Muhammad actually is very well known on television. And again, I, I kind of, I never did auditions with them. I saw their photographs and I immediately connected to their faces. So I cast them and um, 
the funny thing about Muhammad is I didn't realize how um, well-known he was until we were filming and all these shepherds would come up to him and shake his hand and tell him, we saw you last night on TV. So that's when uh, Vincent and I realized he's kind of like the Robert De Niro of Tunisia. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So everything came into place with this film. It was pretty crazy, honestly. You know, but I mean, I think it's a testament to... I mean, what I learned on the film, it's a testament to following your instincts and having faith. Mm -hmm. Um, That was the big life lesson I took out of the project. But, you know, I, yeah, it was amazing in that sense. I definitely learned a lot um, about about life through this project. It's It's a wonderfully told script, and I love how it evolves. And I love the images again that you create. And you work really well with uh, uh, Vincent Gonville. Gonville, is that how he pronounces it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You two work really well together. Um, Now, the the film is uh, 25 minutes. And with me, I like my short film short. So when I saw that this was 25 (laughs) minutes, I thought, oh, no, it's going to feel really long. And um, it's... But it doesn't. It's like that and God's Weeds and Revolutions. You're, uh, yeah. you, you time really well. You edit really well. And the, your movies go past when you're so engrossed, you don't realize that the time is passing. And by the end of Brotherhood, I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, like, oh, that's so Beautiful compliment, Donna. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful film. You know, this the stubborn dad, uh, the yeah. the son who's come back home. You know, trying to to reestablish himself with family and reconnect with his brothers whom he loves. And I love the the scenes by the water where they're just playing and you know being boys and. Uh, yeah. the mother engaging uh, the young woman who is new to the house and the stubbornness of the father, um, all of the, the family things that happen everywhere um, in the world, but yeah. so specific uh, to this family and, and to Tunisia. And that's why I keep using the word interesting um, with your film, <laughs> because it, it's so refreshing. And I just want to thank you so much, Miriam, for making this film. Thank you. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I hope to achieve with this film is just to show how universal family is, no mm. matter where you are. Yeah. And that's what I hope to convey with this film, that a Tunisian family is very much like an American family or a Canadian family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a Canadian family who has the same thing happened to them will probably react in a very similar way. Right. Um, yeah. So that was my hope for this film. That was a TIFF flashback moment with Academy Award nominated director Miriam Joubert. TIFF has two remaining shortcuts programs that you can check out. Monday, September the 14th, 6 p.m., films from Israel, Canada, Lebanon, and the U.K., 
Of particular interest to me is the South Asian father-son weightlifters short called Strong Son. In Program 5 on Tuesday, September 15th at 6 p.m., there is Sucker and Sinking Ships, two films that I've screened and can recommend. And in that section, Canada, Belgium, Portugal, and the U.S. are both represented. You never know which one of these remaining shortcuts programs will feature an Academy-nominated or winning short film. www.tiff.net for all the information and your virtual tickets. Hi, this is Carol Pope on CIUT 89.5 FM. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is Daniel Garber, the movies on culturalmining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM and on Twitter at Cultural Mining. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Come join my night owls and early birds Wednesday mornings, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. And happy tiffing! I'm Mark Tara from the syndicated radio show and number one LGBT podcast, Rainbow Country, which can be heard right here on CIUT Tuesdays, 11 p.m. Don't forget, we will be back on Tuesday, 11 a.m. and Wednesday at 2 p.m. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight, we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for Holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um... I'm very proud to be here tonight, and I'm so grateful that you joined us. I'll stop till you get enough. Hello, Toronto! Happy Halloween, Michael. Muchas <laughs> gracias. Toronto, the best of them all. If you ever think about the best place to watch them, it's I want to thank Toronto because you have always honored, celebrated, exalted female directors. The warmth and the love that you gave me is something I will never forget in my life. It's so exciting to be here at Toronto in this gorgeous theater. This is just like Christmas Day. Thanks to you for coming. This is truly a very special evening for me. This is why we do what we do, you know. I love this festival and it's an honor to be back. Behind me is what we call society, what we see in our everyday, and what we have on screen. Let's keep on doing movies about us. We're making pictures about what's happening today in society. Thank you, thank you for coming! My name is Charles Officer, and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince on CIUT 89.5 FM. Taking us out, trans jazz musician, Billy Tipton.